0: out like that before I preach though because I'm about to lose my voice already and I got a lot to say this morning I can't be doing can't be doing that <clears throat> anyway man it's great to see everybody I am looking forward to continuing our study of the book of second Thessalonians and you know we have man we've got a, a good bit of ground to cover this morning a lot of ground that is vital that we get into our lives so because of that, though, it, I won't be able to review a whole lot. We're, we're going to be studying the last three verses of chapter 2 of the book of 2 Thessalonians. And, and, of course, last week we studied verses 13 and 14. And, and, and we saw last week that, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, man, they were so thankful that despite the fact that there will be many people out there that, re, that refuse to receive the love of the truth, they were so thankful that this group, this Church of the Thessalonians, that they weren't like that. They, were, that. they were individuals who received the love of the truth. And so what we saw last week is that they were expressing their gratitude for that. They were, they were thankful that they had received the love of the truth, despite the fact that there will be many that won't. And, and we got into a good bit of detail last week as to the specific and the unique way that people are saved in the day and age and the period of time that we're currently living in. And and, and now as Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they are continuing this epistle or continuing this letter to the church of the Thessalonians, what we're about to see is that after they express this gratitude for for the faith and salvation of those in the church of the Thessalonians, what they begin to do is they begin to transition from there and they begin to exhort this group of believers they, they begin to exhort and to encourage and to begin challenging these believers now that they're saved so first this morning we're going to look at the exhortation for believers the exhortation for believers did everybody get a study sheet raise your hand if you didn't and, <clears throat> and somebody will grab you one the exhortation for believers second Thessalonians 2 beginning in in verse 15 is where we're going to pick up this morning it's it begins and says therefore and that's of course a, a very important word that we need to to notice to begin with therefore or because what i just said is true what is about to be said ought to be true in your life that's what we're about to see in other words Because what what was just said is true, which is your believers in Jesus Christ who have been called to eternal glory in eternity, because of that truth, here's what you need to do. Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So the first thing the Thessalonians are exhorted to do is stand fast. They're to they're to stand fast They they were to stand fast or we could say they they were to they were to stand firm and, and obviously they're they're using this term Stand and they're using it to describe something spiritual not necessarily something physical but god uses that term in, in, in the way God uses that term he uses it because we understand the physical and because we understand the physical It's going to help us to understand the spiritual here And here are the two things that we know to be true About standing physically, which is not going to be hard to connect the dot to how it applies spiritually for one If you're standing it means You're maintaining an upright position And you haven't fallen Certainly, we don't want to fall spiritually whether that be falling away from the faith or falling morally We don't we don't want to fall in either sense. We've been called to stand and not fall So standing means you're maintaining an upright position and you haven't fallen and then secondly if you're standing It obviously means that you are firmly situated in a particular position you haven't fallen spiritually and you're standing and you're standing in a particular position. There are particular positions in specific doctrinal positions that we've been called to stand for and not fall from. Many people, especially when they get outside of the protection of a Bible believing church, many people fall from particular positions that they used to stand for. And God has called us to to stand firm and not fall from the faith and not fall into sin and to stand on truths and stand on doctrinal positions that God has revealed to us through his word as we study it. So so there's a lot packed into this phrase, stand fast, when we just simply examine what standing is physically. And and as we dive in deeper and, and we study This idea of standing fast or standing firm, what we find is, is that this concept actually comes up quite a few times in the Bible, and it's actually associated with a variety of different things. I'll show you what I mean. One of the other places that we see this idea is Ephesians 6, 11 through 14. This passage is a very well-known passage. Of course, it's about the armor of God, but have you ever noticed what the armor of God was for? Verses 11 through 14 make it about as crystal clear as it could possibly get. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breast, breastplate of righteousness are you picking up what God's putting down you putting on the armor of God is all about being able to stand against the attacks of the devil so so we so we see that we're to stand fast number 1 against the devil's attacks listen the attacks are going to come. It, it, that's not an if, that's a when. Some of you are living in the midst of attacks right now as we speak. The attacks are going to come, and we've been called to put on this armor so that we can stand against the attacks and not get wounded and sidelined and fall. And and because that's what Satan's attacks can do, can't they? They they can cause us to to get discouraged, and they can cause us to get... Disillusioned and they can cause us to fall They can cause us to fall morally because satan is working in conjunction with our flesh And he's trying to hit us where we're weak and where we don't have on the spiritual armor Satan can come in and deceive and he can try to get us to fall that way too and try to get us to fall from doctrinal Positions that god has clearly revealed to us so we armor up so that we're able to withstand satan's attacks and and we're able to stand in the proper position and not fall So when god tells us to stand firm, we we see that one of the ways we must stand firm is against the inevitable attacks from the devil first corinthians sixteen thirteen is, is another place in the bible that talks about standing fast and in this passage We learn that we're to stand fast in the faith is what it says we're to stand fast in the faith here's what the verse says verse corinthians 16 13 it says watch ye stand fast in the faith quit you like men be strong we're we're to we're to stand fast in the faith have you ever seen someone fall from the faith Man, it's a sad thing. They were were previously standing firm, and they were rooted in the faith, and they're following the Lord. And as time goes by, it becomes very apparent they're no longer in a standing position anymore. They've they've fallen. And oftentimes the reason they've fallen is because they've they've fallen short of what this verse describes for us that we ought to be doing. They've they've fallen short of God's call on our life to walk. It's late in the night and believers in Jesus Christ, we've been called to watch and be alert and be aware of what's going on around us spiritually all over the place. We previously learned that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. We, we learned that we're, we're living in this spiritual nighttime. And so as believers that are living in a spiritual nighttime, we're to watch and watching is contrasted with sleeping we're to watch and not sleep that's why we've got to watch and we've got to stand because you know what's almost impossible to do while you're standing <laughs> sleep it's pretty much impossible to fall asleep standing up now i can't attest from standing up here it is possible to sleep while sitting up uh, that that I know is that much I know is true. But st- falling asleep while sitting up is a whole lot different than falling asleep while standing up. It, but but if you're if you're not watching and being alert and aware of the of the spiritual world all around you, you fall asleep while standing and you won't be standing long. And what happens is instead of watching for the t- attacks We fall asleep, and we fall, and God says, I've called you to watch and to stand fast in the faith. Go back to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where we just were. We we just saw it it tells us to to stand fast in the faith and to watch. And I want you to see that it also tells us to to quit you like men and be strong. In other words, act like a man and be strong strong and just like we're going to need to watch to stand fast in the faith we're also going to need to act like men and be strong to stand in the faith it's going to take that to stand fast in the faith because it's it's not going to be easy by any means standing fast in the faith is not for sissies it's going to take spiritual fortitude to stand fast in the faith if you're a woman you can still apply that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's a woman. No, you probably don't want to act like a man, but you can have a spiritual backbone and be strong in the faith. Don't allow yourself to get knocked over from your standing position in the faith. Philippians 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 3.8, they give a very similar sentiment when it says to, to stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord or stand fast in the faith. Don't allow anyone or anything to knock you down from your standing position and cause you to fall. So we're to stand fast or stand firm in the faith or stand firm in the Lord. And, and there's another way the Bible lays out for us that we're to stand fast. And that's that we're, we're also to stand fast in liberty. We're to stand fast in liberty. Second Thessalonians tells us that we're to stand fast fast and now what we're doing is is we're looking at the other places in the bible that tell us the exact same thing because those accompany with them particular details as to exactly how it is that we're to stand fast and we're to stand fast in liberty galatians 5 1 says exactly that it says stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage Listen, we have liberty in Jesus Christ and there are many in this room who have been freed from the bondage of legalism. (laughs) And man, praise the the Lord for that. Man-made rules without a verse in context to hang it to is a yoke of bondage. You, You see, the day that we got saved, according to Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, the day we got saved, What happened is, is we went from being servants to sin to being free from sin. What a beautiful day that was. John 8, 34 through 36, Jesus says himself the same thing. And that's exactly what sin is, man. Sin is slavery. Sin is bondage. And by God's grace, Jesus saved us and he he freed us from that slavery and he freed us from that bondage but you know what happens when after we've been freed from slavery and bondage we then we begin to put man-made rules on top of god-given commands revealed to us in scripture that those of uh, what happens is is that those of us that had once been freed from slavery and the bondage are once again slaves and were entangled again in a different yoke of bondage Applying God's commands to our lives is freedom from sin and bondage But applying man-made commands to our lives is back to the bondage That's what legalism does It takes those who have been freed and have liberty and it puts them in bondage once again And you know what happens? The bondage of legalism pulls us down And we can't stand the way that we've been called to stand. It's a yoke of bondage. Now, I do think it's important, because of all of those who have turned liberty into a license to sin, it's important that we always view the liberty that we now have through the lens provided for us in 1 Corinthians 8-9, which says this, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Listen, we, we've got liberty in Christ and we're to stand fast in that liberty so that we're not pulled down by legalism. But don't let that liberty become a stumbling block to somebody else. If what you're doing could be a, become a stumbling block, it's as simple as I'll stop doing it then. Simple as that. Out of love for your brothers and sisters, you don't do it. So that's the lens that we view our liberty through while at the same time God is saying to us, man, don't get pulled down into legalism because it's going to pull you down. It's going to keep you from standing fast in liberty. And then there's one other way that the Bible describes this concept of standing fast. And in this instance, it's connected to unity. We're to stand fast in unity, the Bible teaches us. We're going to see this from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, which says this. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're to stand fast in one spirit, in one mind in here. We're to stand fast and firm together in unity. And there's a very specific purpose that's associated with this unity. This, no, there, it, 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 in, in this purpose, isn't so that we can have a more pleasurable experience when we gather together twice a week. That, 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 no, there's a very specific purpose and an unbelievably important purpose behind the body of Christ standing fast in unity. And it's so that we can strive together and work together. To advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. You see, the church isn't a group of people that you come together with once or twice a week simply to get spiritually fed. I hope that is a part of what is happening in your life. I really do. But it's actually bigger than that. It, it, it's, a, it's for a bigger purpose than that. We're a group that assembles. And the spiritual feeding is for the same exact purpose as the spiritual unity It's all for the ultimate purpose of the furtherance of the gospel of jesus christ to the world He wants us to get fed not as a means to an end No, he wants us to he he wants us to to get Unified but but not as a means to an end either He wants those things to be true so that we'll be in position to reproduce and further the gospel He wants us to have unity so that we strive together and so that we we labor together to further the gospel. That's why we stand fast in unity. Because you know what happens when you don't stand fast in unity and we end up arguing and disputing and end up at odds with one another? It's going to drag us down and we won't be able to stand. We won't be able to stand firm unity, So we won't be able to work together to reach the world And so as we've seen in in all these cases This is why it's important that we stand fast when we when we see this thing of what 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 all this thing of standing fast is connected to we see Why it's so important that we stand fast and that we don't fall And, And that's what paul silas and timothy are saying to the church of the thessalonians and and that's what god wants to say to Us this morning we must stand fast and stand firm so standing firm is the first exhortation for believers that we see from these verses but but there's another exhortation for believers as well and it's that we hold firm this passage also teaches us that we that we hold firm that's exactly what 2 Thessalonians 2:15 says it says hold the tradi- it says stand fast And hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're they're saying to the church of the Thessalonians, they're saying, man, hold firm, hold on tight to the traditions that we taught you, and don't let go. And, and, And as this verse says, and as we know, they taught them by word when they were with them in person. Acts 17 records the history of that for us. They taught them by word there. And they also, of course, taught them by epistle or taught them by letter, because, of course, that's 1 and 2 Thessalonians that we've been studying for quite some time now. But, but if you're a student of the Bible or, or if you've been around here for any period of time, there's probably a word in this verse that is throwing you off just a little bit, and you're not sure what to do with that word. And it's that word, traditions. That's kind of a. That's usually a cuss word around here, isn't it? Traditions. You see, many of you have been taught that traditions are a very dangerous thing. Rightfully so. Extra biblical traditions, or, or traditions that are found outside of the Bible, can be extremely dangerous, especially when we begin to apply them as essential doctrines. Seven sacraments. That's a great example of that. There's no biblical precedence for it. Yet there is a religious group that believes that keeping the sacraments are essential for salvation. That's pretty scary considering the Bible says that Jesus plus anything means no salvation. That's a really, that's a really scary place to be. And the most loving thing that could be done is, is expose that. You, you can't add anything. To what jesus already did and to believe that you can is to diminish what jesus did on the cross If we could do anything to contribute to saving ourselves Then why did jesus have to come and go through everything that he went through? Why so we've always presented traditions in this church through a negative light? And so why is it that it's being cast in a positive light in this verse? Because it it isn't even just that our church presents traditions in a negative light. the Bible <laughs> puts traditions in a negative light all the time too. The Bible does it all the time matthew fifteen three Jesus asks, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Jesus didn't seem to care for tradition too much. in a parallel passage in mark seven eight Jesus says, you're rejecting the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Even Paul, the same one who had part in writing the book of 2 Thessalonians, even Paul seems to sing a different tune about traditions in Colossians 2.8. He says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. So this thing of tradition, it's its consistently found in the Bible in a negative light. And I just wanted to make sure that we address this issue because we can tend to get all worked up about things in the Bible that we don't understand or that seem to be in conflict with other parts of the Bible, when most oftentimes there's just a very simple answer and a very simple explanation. And the explanation is quite simply, there's a major difference between Man's traditions and God's traditions those are two very different things on the next slide We see all the verses that we that we had just looked at again And look at how all the traditions that we just looked at are described in Matthew 15 13. It's your Tradition in in mark 7 8. It's the tradition of men in Colossians 2 8. It's the tradition of of men, so listen. The traditions were their own traditions. They were the traditions of men. So, so the the traditions were their own, and that's typically what we think of, and it's typically what we're referring to when we're talking about this thing of traditions. But, but quite simply, the traditions in our passage from Second Thessalonians two fifteen, these were traditions from God. <laughs> They were traditions that were received by epistle, or they were received by what we know to be God-breathed scripture. And they were traditions that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had given the Thessalonians also by their own mouths as they were speaking on behalf of God prior to the completion of the New Testament. You see, keep in mind, it's believed by many that the first letter to the Thessalonians, the, the, the first Thessalonians, It was one of the first books written in our New Testament. So they didn't have the completed canon of Scripture and the entire New Testament to refer to like we do. And so even the words that they were speaking to the Thessalonians, it was was the word of God that they were speaking, not just writing, they were speaking it too. That's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says. We studied this passage. But did you notice it says, but for this cause thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God how did how wh- how was it received was it only written which ye heard of us ye received it not as the word of man but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe listen we understand that the 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 two letters that were written to the church of the Thessalonians first and second Thessalonians we understand those letters were They were scripture, but so was what they were saying when they were with them. When Paul, Silas, and Timothy spoke, I'm about to sneeze. (coughs) Holy smokes. Sorry. I don't think I've ever done that while preaching before. Somebody snuck some pepper up here or something. (laughs) Listen, when... when So when Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so when they spoke, they had this special ability to speak to them the word of God prior to the completion of the New Testament. That's why it says that Th- the Thessalonians received what they heard, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. It was their spoken word. So that's what so so what they wrote to the Thessalonians and what they said to the Thessalonians were both. The Word of God. So these traditions, they were God's traditions. The traditions were the the beliefs and the instructions that God instituted. They were the practices that God ordained. And and so in this verse, God's trying to teach us, make sure that you hold on to all of these truths that you've been taught. Don't let go of those things. Hold on because holding on tight to these truths, you know what that's going to do? It's going to help stabilize. So that you don't fall you understand you can remain standing and not fall because you're holding on to something You're holding on to the truths of God's Word 2nd Timothy 1 it says Hold fast the form of sound words Which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ You better hold fast hold firm and hold on tight to those words you've received listen Throughout religious groups that define themselves as Christians, there are a lot of words being said out there in the world. But you better hold on fast to the sound ones. You better hold on tight to what's sound and true. Don't allow anything or anyone to cause you to let go of those words. Titus 1.9, it talks about the qualifications of an elder. And it says, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. How is it that we're to exhort and convince the gainsayers or to exhort and convince those who are in opposition to the faith? We do it by sound doctrine. <laughs> Not just any old doctrine. There are a lot of doctrines that have a verse attached to them that aren't sound And True and rooted we we do it not just any doctrine but sound and true doctrine And we're able to do that by holding fast the faithful words that we've been taught first Thessalonians 5 21 says Prove all things Hold fast that which is good There's a lot of religious chatter that goes on and we have access to all of it We have no shortage of that but listen prove out what you hear and hold fast when you find the good and, it, and it's interesting the way it works because a lot of the christian life is all about being able to let go of things right we've got a we've got to let go of fleshly lusts and desires and we've got to let go of our of our rights and we've got to Let go of our desire to control all the circumstances of our lives and let go of our right to be treated better than that. And we could go on and on and on. But in the midst of letting go of a lot of things, God's also called us to hold on to some stuff too. And God's called us to hold fast and and hold firm to the truth of God's word and to sound doctrine and hold on to that thing we got to learn to let go of a lot of things, but the truth and sound doctrine, that's something we can't let go of that. And that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are exhorting the Thessalonians to do and what God is exhorting us to do, stand fast and hold firm. And then as Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they continue writing chapter 2, we see that they lay out for us some, some very important reminders and some truths regarding who God is and, and, and what God is. Has given us and so next we're going to see the reminders for believers the reminders For believers There are some certain things about God that Paul Silas and Timothy that want to remind the Thessalonians of 2nd Thessalonians 2 16. Here's what it says Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God even our father <laughs> which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. In this, in, in this verse, though one name of God probably would have sufficed and we probably could have caught the drift, Paul, Silas, and Timothy sit there and they rattle off these multiple names of God. They just kind of keep it going. They're kind of milking it for all it's worth here. And they do that because they want to put a reminder in front of us. And they say, hey, in the midst of all of this stuff, in the midst of this... Exhortation and all of these things that's going on. We want to remind you of who it is That you're dealing with and we're we're reminded in this passage of who god is And in 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 that in the verse that that we just read there in verse 16 We see god is described as our lord. He's god And he's our father And and so though most of us we of course know the reality that our creator's identity we, we we know these things that he's lord and yes he's god and he's father and and we know that intellectually but man it, knowing that in- intellectually is totally different than actually relating to him through what those names mean and so let's take a second to talk about knowing jesus as lord or knowing god as as lord that's number one we, he's defined as as lord you see there's coming a day y'all when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's just a matter of whether we're going to do it now or when it's too late. But it's going to everybody's they're going to realize it one day, but the day that you realize it may be too late. And and, and let's be be sure to understand what Jesus being Lord actually is because what the word Lord means is it means something that sounds even a little more hardcore than Lord. It means master. Lord, yes. So you know what that means when Jesus is your Lord and your master? It means that the only word in your vocabulary in response to him is a resounding yes. Lord. God reveals to you through time and his word or through preaching that there's something in your life you need to stop without any deliberation or reservation. Yes. God reveals to you through your time in the word or through your time or through a time of preaching that there's something in your life that you need to start without any hesitation or deliberation. Yes. Is that characteristic of your life? Or or, or are we more inclined to do the I feel convicted, but I'm going to proceed and continue down the same path I'm on. And I'm not going to do what I know I need to do, and I'm not going to stop what I know I need to stop. See, when we do that, understand, that's what is characteristic, practically speaking, of someone who does not have Jesus as the Lord of their life. In fact, it's characteristic of someone who isn't saved, actually. And it's scary because that's what salvation is supposed to be about, right? Jesus becoming the Lord of our lives. And I'm sure Jesus is dying to ask a lot of us the same question he asked in Luke 6.46. Luke 6.46. Send in there? All right, that's okay. Why... You, you guys know the question. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Right. Is there something you don't understand about what that word means? Right? That's what he's asking. And man, that's, a, that's important that we get that thing nailed down and we evaluate our lives and figure out, is, is Jesus Lord? Do we just call him that? Do we act like that? The next title we see in this verse is God. Of course, this is the, this is the obvious one. Of course, we're looking at who God is and surprise surprise. He's God You know, but but it's easy to use that name and not understand what that name actually means But you know, cory was just been talking about a lot of this stuff this past Wednesday night, but but one of the things I want us to consider about god is Is that in the bible over and over again? We see this principle when he is our god We are his people this 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 it, this is a recurring theme in Leviticus 26 12 it says and I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people Jeremiah seven twenty three says but this thing commanded I them saying obey my voice and I will be your God and ye shall be my people Ezekiel 36 28 says And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. And we could go on and on for a while, actually, with finding a phrase like that in the Bible, saying the same thing. And at the heart of it all is this. God has always desired that there would be a group of people who were separated unto him, and he would be their God. And listen, he's not just God. It's so much better than that. He's he's your God. And and, and, and that's the unbelievable reality that the God has now become your God. He's become our God. Wow. And as your God or as our God, he wants to dwell in us. And he wants to walk in us, according to 2 Corinthians 6.16. 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says, And, and, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So so he is our God and we are his people. And God's desire is to have a close, intimate relationship with us. So much so that he designed it that he would dwell in us and walk in us. We talked last week about, about the fact that God dwells in us and we dwell in him, but he not only dwells in us, God describes how this works in, in more detail, and he actually says and, and walk in them. He dwells in us and walks in us. Let, let me ask you, as God walks in you, what all is he finding in there? Are there places inside of you that you're blocking him off of that you're keeping to yourself? Are there places inside of you that God isn't welcome to walk because you're hanging on to stuff you shouldn't be hanging on to? You see, we know him intellectually as God, but practically speaking, that may not be the case. And then the last way God is referred to in this verses is his father. He's referred to as, as father and in verse 16 it says and god even our father he's our lord and he's our god but may we never get too far removed from the reality that the same one we submit to as master and call lord and the same one who is our god and we are his people also wants to relate to us as father And because we tend to see our our heavenly father the same way we see our earthly father, like we've been learning on Wednesday night, based on the earthly father that you had, God being our father may seem like the greatest thing in the world, and in other cases, that may seem like the worst thing in the world. Because some of our earthly fathers, man, they knocked it out of the park when it came to their God-given responsibility to exemplify the heavenly father and to point us to the heavenly father but many others didn't many others failed miserably at that and and one of the unique responsibilities of a father that many of our fathers failed at has to do with this thing of chastening hebrews twelve seven through 11 describes this for us when it says if ye endure chastening god dealeth with you as with sons For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit that we might be partakers... Of His holiness, now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised there thereby. Listen, God, being our Father, is the most beautiful thing in the world, but it is connected to discipline and chastisement. it is a unique responsibility that a father has, and though, as verse eleven says. Though chastening is absolutely no fun in the moment, in the end, it's worth it because it's fruitful and it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Verse 10 tells us our Heavenly Father, man, He doesn't discipline us out of anger. He doesn't discipline us out of disdain or, out of, or, or, or something of that nature. No, He does it for our profit. He does it to bring about holiness in our lives. He does it because ultimately, it's one of the most loving things he could possibly do for his children. So chastisement, it's one of the ways that God relates to us as father, but though it seems like a bad thing, if it's needed, this is an incredibly good thing. And listen, some of our earthly fathers, man, they nailed that thing perfect. Praise the Lord. They got that thing right. Some people are a few spankings short of where they should have been and... Those people are usually not hard to find, figure out. Some people got spanked, but they didn't get spanked in love, they got spanked in anger, and man, sometimes those people are easy to figure out too. And others re- received it and they just they you know, they didn't do it in love, but our heavenly Father, he chastises, and he does it in love and he does it for our good. And so as a loving father, God chastises, but the the, the part of God as father that we want to make sure that we relate to that we that we want to make sure that we always keep in mind in the midst of that and I believe that Paul Silas and Timothy want us to remember as they go out of their way to call him even our father the side of him that I want us to see is the side of him revealed in the parable of the prodigal son if you'll recall in the parable a father had two sons the younger one he decides to squander his inheritance and so He leaves he leaves his family he ran off and he wasted his wasted his life with riotous living He wasted his inheritance and there comes this famine in the land And so he begins to starve in fact says the the pigs were even eating better than he was And the prodigal son he begins to reevaluate what he's made of his life And pick up with me in luke 15 18 It says I will arise and i'll go to my father Say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him. Oh, I'm sorry. So when he's a great way off, his, his father sees him, and you just have to wonder how he saw him a great way off. And you just have to think that he saw him a great way off because every day he was waiting, he was ready and willing to forgive if he just come back home. He says he had compassion. He ran, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. The father is looking for him because he is so ready to forgive. And when he finally sees him, he doesn't wait. He runs to where he is. And one of the beautiful parts of the story is that that same road that that child walked out in rebellion down is the same road that the father runs back down to receive him compassion and forgiveness verse 21 it says and the the son said unto him father i've sinned against heaven and in thy sight i'm no more worthy to be called thy son but the father said to his servants bring forth the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again he's lost and he's found and they began to be merry Listen, that's the kind of father that God it. He's, he's a father that's ready and he's willing to forgive. And when we screw up and we will, we can come to a God and we can find a God that though it may require chastisement, he's not wanting to rub our face in it. He's wanting to forgive us. That's who our father is. And so as Paul, Silas, and Timothy right to the church of the thessalonians he clears off some space to remind them of who it is that god is and from there they immediately begin to remind us of what god gave us what god gave letter b they describe who god is and then they describe i think you what god who god is and they describe what god has given those of us that are believers in jesus christ look again at verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Listen, there are three things that are laid out for us that our Lord God and our Father has given us. And the first thing is love. Of course, this, this overlaps a lot of what we just saw and a lot of what we just looked at as to who God is. Because the fact is, God is love. 1 John 4, 8, and 16, they both say exactly that. God is love. God doesn't just possess love. You understand that? Love isn't just one of his characteristics. He is love. It is the essence of his being. It is his essential nature. And if God ever ceased to love, he would cease to exist because God is love. And I I get that the reality that God loves us is is a truth that many of us have heard hundreds, if not getting into the thousands of times, depending on how long you've been around church. But though it's a very simple concept, man, may we never get too far removed from how absolutely unbelievable and beyond belief it is that God even knows or cares who we are, much less loves us. And I get how it works man Circumstances happen in in our lives that we can't understand and and we consciously or maybe subconsciously begin to doubt that truth no matter how much we've heard it And we can begin to feel like he doesn't love us or he doesn't care or maybe he's not paying attention But listen, man, this is the same god that not only proved his love for us by dying for us But according to Matthew 10 30, he goes as far as to say, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Now, for some of you, that is a very easy task. (laughs) And for others, it's getting easier with each and every passing day, isn't it? But you understand what God is, what Jesus is trying to teach us by saying that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying If I even care enough about something so small and minuscule and insignificant as the hairs on your head, don't you know I'm well aware of the circumstances going on in your life? If I even care about that, can't you see how much I care about everything going on in your life? (laughs) So that's one of the things that Paul, Silas, and Timothy tell us that God has given us. He's given us his love. And according to this same verse, he's also given us everlasting consolation that's what verse 16 goes on to say he's given us everlasting consolation in other words he has given us something to forever console us and to forever give us solace and, and we see this reality laid out for us in hebrews thirteen five through 6 for those of us who are believers in christ this is what it says Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have for for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Listen, God has given us everlasting consolation because his promise to his people is that has always been that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Now in the New Testament, that promise takes on a whole new life because the Holy Spirit of God took up residence inside of us permanently. So in light of that permanent indwelling, what this passage is teaching us about God never leaving us is something that in some cases is an unbelievably good thing, and in other cases is an unbelievably bad thing. It's kind of like that the principle of reaping and sowing, right? You, you, you're you going to reap what you sow, Okay. Well, if you're doing what God called you to do and you're so into the spirit, then that's a wonderful truth to understand. (laughs) But if you're so into the flesh, then man, you know, not doing what God's called you to do. That's a that's an awful truth to understand, isn't it? And this truth of God never leaving us or forsaking us works the exact same way. Because this verse is coming off the heels of talking about sexual sin. And, And that's the cold, hard reality. If you're a believer and involve yourself in sexual sin God will never leave you nor forsake you, so don't take him with you when you do all that trash. That's clearly the negative application. But the positive application for those living how we've been called to live is that no matter what we're going through, God will never leave us nor forsake us. And because of that, we know what verse 6 says is true. We can boldly say, no matter what's going on in our lives, the Lord is my help. And even if as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, even if that causes us to reach a place where our life is at stake because of it, we don't have to fear what man can do, with us, do to us, no matter how dark things may, things may seem in our lives. And because he'll never leave us or forsake us, our future is secure. We're eternally <clears throat> secure. Nothing can keep us from the future reality that we're going to spend eternity With the Lord because he'll never leave us or forsake us That my friend is what you call everlasting consolation And god is is reminding us of this reality that god has given us everlasting Consolation as believers in him. There's there's nothing that could separate us from him So paul silas and timothy. They they remind us that god loves us They remind us that we have everlasting consolation And then they remind us that God has given us, number three, good hope through grace. Good hope through grace. That's what the end of verse 16 says. He's given us good hope through grace. And this is something else that that we're reminded of and is extremely important, that we live our lives with an understanding of this reality. We have good hope through grace. And, and I'll show you what I mean as we compare scripture with scripture. Here's how that good hope through grace is described in Titus 2.13. Here's what it says. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our, our blessed hope is when our Lord Jesus Christ appears in the sky. He raptures us off of this planet and we see him face to face for the first time. And, and, it, and, it, and it's not our blessed hope as if we're hoping it's something that's going to happen, but we're not sure. No, it's something we have complete certainty in that gives us hope. That's what having good hope through grace is. It's the absolute certainty that we have that because of God's grace in our lives through salvation, that when this temporal existence is all over, we're going to be with the one that died for us as believers in jesus christ god has given us that good hope through grace and that's what we're looking for that's what we're waiting for the return of jesus when he meets us in the air and god wants to remind us of that sure most of us already know i know god loves me i know that we have everlasting con- con- you know we have everlasting consolation because he'll never leave us nor forsake us and that we have good hope through grace because we know how this life ends. Jesus is coming back for us, but God never wants us to get too far removed from those realities. We can't treat them casually. So we've seen that that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they exhort the Thessalonians, they give the Thessalonians some reminders, and then next we're going to see the aspirations for believers. The aspirations for believers. There are some things that Paul, Silas, and Timothy desire to be true in the lives of the Thessalonians that we see in verse 17. Their aspirations and desires for the Thessalonians was that the same one who was their Lord God and their Father, who who loves them and has given them everlasting cons- consolation and good hope through grace, their desire is that that same God would, verse 17 Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work So first paul silas and timothy. They desired that the thessalonians hearts would be comforted their desire for was for them to have comfort Letter a and listen all those reminders that we just went through from the last verse They're all pointing us to comfort That's what those reminders are all about God saying you can take comfort by remembering who I am I'm your lord your your god and your father and as your lord your god and your father You can take comfort in the fact that I love you <laughs> No matter what your circumstances are We can take comfort in the fact that our lord god and father Loves us and so listen Because he loves us, we can take comfort in that because we know that the one that is in control of our lives and all things, and the one who either appoints or allows all things in our lives, loves us, and so that means everything that happens in our lives is either for his good, or for our good, or his glory. There's a lot of comfort we should be able to take in that, (laughs) That same God has given us everlasting consolation, and we know that no matter what our circumstances are, God will be with us no matter what and will never leave us or forsake us. That should console us forever. That should be a great comfort to us. That same God has given us good hope through grace, and he's coming back for us, and we're going to see him face to face and forever be with the Lord. That should be a great comfort to us. And God lays all these things out for us because he wants to give us comfort. He doesn't want the things that are going on in our lives to put us through the ringer. He doesn't want our circumstances to cause us distress and cause us anxiousness. He wants us to have comfort no matter what is going on all around us because we know no matter what God loves us, and he'll never leave us, and he'll always be there for us. And even if whatever's going on in our life costs us our life, all that does is put us face-to-face with God and into his loving arms. God wants us to take comfort in those things. And so that was Paul, Silas, and Timothy's hope for the Thessalonians, that their hearts would be comforted. But there were two other aspirations or hopes that they had for the Thessalonians. And we're going to look at these two things together, which is they're to be established in every good word, And to be established in every good work, to be established in every good word and work. And I'm giving them to you at the same time because we're going to look at these together and it's going to come relatively quick. So so hang with me. We're almost done. Again, verse 17 of Second Thessalonians 2 says Paul, Silas and Timothy's hope is that God would comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And listen, here's how it works. We'll never be established in every good word and work if we haven't allowed the reminders of God that we already looked at to comfort our hearts. Because if we don't allow those truths to comfort our hearts, it's going to be really easy to get us sidelined from being established in every good work because when tough times come, and they will, we're a sitting duck, man. But those truths we've been seeing about God's love and the fact he'll never leave us and he's coming back for us Those truths should cause us to be able to push forward towards every good word and work God wants us to be established In those two things and be comforted in the midst of whatever comes our way so that no matter what We're continuing to push forward in every good word and every good work. We're comforted God wants us to say what we've been called to say and he wants us to do what we've been called to do every good word every good work hebrews 6 5 refers to the good word of god and listen there's a lot of good words we can say but there's no better words than the good word of god that's for sure so when the end of second thessalonians chapter 2 reveals to us that we need to be established in every good word, there's no better word we could speak than the truth of the word of God. Our lives should be established and rooted in speaking the truth of the word of God to a lost and dying world that's desperately in need of a savior. That should be something that should be a common occurrence in our lives because we're established in that. Giving the message of the gospel to unbelievers should just be a part of our lives. Just as normal as a Monday, normal as a Tuesday. Giving the truth of the word of God to believers should be as well so that they'll be established. That should be a part of our lives. We've got to be established in that. But you see, we've got to not only be established in every good word, but also in every good work. Colossians 1.10 says it like this. That ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What pleases the Lord is that we walk worthy of the Lord by being fruitful in every good work. God has called us to live lives that are characterized by good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, It's always been God's plan that believers in Jesus Christ would walk in good works after salvation. Our lives should be different than the rest of the world's. now. We are a child of God. God is our father. How are we not going to act like our father? We aren't saved by good works. But now that we are saved, it's God's design that we would walk in good works. And let me just tell you. In in Christianity today, it is extremely challenging to find someone rooted in both. You can find those that are established in one or the other, but man, it's hard to find someone established in both. You can find people that have been established in every good word, and they share the gospel a lot. And you're like, wow, man, this dude is bold with this thing. The problem is that a lot of people that talk about their faith the most, when you get a little closer to them, something stinks. And it's their life. It's their works. You realize they're not established in every good work, are they? Their lives don't match their mouths. And then you've got other, another group of people. They live holy lives and they're established in every good work. But they rarely open their mouths to share the gospel. And they rarely disciple anyone. They're not established in every... They're not established in every good word and you see y'all we've been called to both the world is filled with christians that are either established in one or the other but they're not established in both and that causes a major problem because god designed those two things to work together (laughs) god's plan was that his people would have good works while at the same time they would be speaking good words God's plan was that his people would live holy lives while at the same time sharing the gospel and establishing people in the faith. But we live in a world where you can't hardly find someone who's got both of those things true of their lives. Let me ask you this morning, man, which one are you missing? Which one of those are you missing? Listen, maybe it's neither. Maybe it's both would you deal with what God's revealing to you this morning right now let's pray father we love you we thank you we thank you for who you are god we thank you for all the all the consolation you've given us all the comfort that you've given us and you've given it to us god so that so that we can we can be used so that we can be established in every good word and every good work god i pray that would be true of our lives pray we would be bold with our mouths from the backdrop of a holy life, in that it would line up the way you've called it, called us to have it lined up. God, we love you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for forgiving us. And we pray you'd be honored in this service this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.